Yes, of course, I'm prepared for the storm. If the sun is shining, there's hardly even any cloud in the sky. Oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano. And welcome to RLTP's Off-Road, another edition of the podcast for theater friends and Buffalo fans. And this week, we take a little side trip off of the theater road. It's called Off-Road, after all. And this time, we're going to focus on an incredible artistic talent right in our midst. The man's name is Leroy Caldwell-Johnson. Uh, for those of you who don't know the name, I will say very briefly, he was uh, he is the brother of Rick James, which is not what our focus is. Our focus is on this man's artistic talent. So we're going to focus on what he does and his paintings. And if you saw his the picture of him in our podcast, on our podcast page, you've seen his paintings. I wanted to make sure we got some of them on there. And he is extremely talented. And we will, of course, talk about his life and his connections to his brother, Rick, and how he managed his career and so on. But again, the focus is on the paintings of Leroy C. Johnson. But we're also going to start with a new segment that I'm going to introduce from time to time here on the podcast, and it's called RLTP Ensemble at Work Elsewhere. And what that means is, as you may or may not know, the Road Less Traveled Theater has an ensemble, a group of people who are sort of collectively put together, sort of friends of the theater, friends of the company, and they are all very talented people. There are actors, there are designers, there are directors, there are all sorts of people in this ensemble. And they're all working elsewhere as well as within our LTP. So... I'm going to try to introduce them and introduce something that they are working on that is not under the umbrella of Road Less Traveled Productions. And we're going to start off with Miss Kyle Locanti. And we're starting with Kyle because, frankly, well, <laughs> we were supposed to open a show a couple of weeks ago. Kyle was directing. I was in the show. It was going to give me a good opportunity to promote the show and myself and the, and Kyle. And uh, guess what? The show was postponed till June, but I didn't want to postpone Kyle. So here she is talking about something else she's working on. It's a project for the Second Generation Theater Company. In conjunction with the Women's Bar Association. And uh, Kyle will tell you all about it here on RLTP's Off-Road. Well, let's talk about the second generation thing, if you still can. I mean, I assume that that's still on. Well, as far as I know, I mean, it is as of this moment, because it's not going to happen until mid-May. So as of this moment, everything is happening remotely, and it is still very, very formative. And they were they were sweet enough to say, you know, just get Kavanoki up and running, and then we'll really kind of dig in and talk about it. So the way it seems to have happened, and I came sort of late to the party, is Second Generation Theater is working with the Women's Bar Association of Buffalo. And they, they have done something like this before, and they use it as a presentation to their membership, who also can use it then as continuing education credit, which is kind of a cool sort of way to get sort of theater into a different place and reaching different people. So Kelly and Kristen asked if I would come on board. I think I'm the second person to be in the director's I think somebody else was there and then had to step away. And so they came to me and asked if I would be interested in doing it. And funnily enough, I had had conversations already with Tina Rausa because she has done a great deal of the writing that I believe will eventually become this performance. She's very interested in Susan B. Anthony and in particular, it centers on the this trial that she stood up in accused of voting illegally. She went and voted at a time when women did, did not, you know, according to some, have the right. According to her, she did have the right. So she went and voted. And 
was arrested and accused or yeah accused of the crime and stood trial and it it was if you look at the original transcripts it was a complete kangaroo court and fascinating so tina has been dabbling with this information and some other historical documents and copies of stump speeches that Susan B. Anthony made, letters back and forth to other uh, suffragist women. And so I am working with Tina and with a group of women from the Women's Bar Association to put this on in May as part of their uh, a presentation slash continuing education, which I think is kind of cool. Who is actually writing it? And is this an absolutely completely new original piece? Tina at this point has the basis for what will become the play or the, the presentation. There will be other people on stage besides Tina. So right now is a very collaborative effort. The actual script is not completely finalized. And that's where I come in to sort of help put the finishing touches on. I'm not really doing much quote unquote writing. It's more an editing and piecing things together in what I think will make the best kind of dramatic presentation. And so at this point, it there isn't a finished document. It's a work in progress. And, and that's kind of our job between now and May is to finalize it and then finalize with the members of the Bar Association who are interested in participating, who will be reading what characters. I shouldn't say reading because they're not doing a reading. They're doing a full-blown production. Okay. Rather limited technical Production values, yes. Brian Kavanaugh is going to be working lighting and sound. It will be presented at the uh, 20th Century Club. And they have this lovely amazingly beautiful ballroom, I guess is what they call it, that has a stage at one end. And and so he'll bring in some lights and some sound and and we will present it to the room. And I think it's going to be presented just one day, but an afternoon and an evening performance. So two times in one day. Will it be will it be open to the public in any way or is it only for members of the bar? I don't think it's going to be open in the public. And that's not just a COVID decision. I think this is just the way the thing has been planned from the beginning, that it is just an offering to this group. Are they basically producing it in terms of providing funding and all of that? So it's their really their production, not not second generation. Correct. They have hired second generation to put it all together. But it is my understanding that the, the the budget comes from the Women's Bar Association. And okay. so they've just hired second gen to to find the talent, to find the, you know, design people, directors, actors, and get the script into, into the shape that it wants to be for the production. So they're facilitating the production for the Women's Bar Association. And has there been any talk that maybe Maybe this might actually be something that could be a public presentation at some point that maybe this play will turn out to be something that's worth publishing and producing? Well, I I have not myself heard any talk like that. However, mm -hmm. I know that this is a project that Tina has been personally working on for a long, long time. We started talking about it. I think the first time she and I talked about it was way back when I was doing the new play workshop for Road Less Traveled. So that's a number of years ago. And I know yeah. she's been working it. And I do not know whether she has actually done full-blown productions of it or whether it has remained a work in progress all this time. But I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised at all if this is something that, that the conversation continues after this presentation in May. Well, maybe you don't know this, but which came first, the chicken or the egg here? Did the Women's Bar Association hear about Tina's work in this, or or did they have an interest in it and somehow Tina connected? I mean, if Tina's been working on this this long, it can't be just some miraculous coincidence that it fits perfectly with something they'd be interested in. Maybe it could be a miraculous coincidence. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't I don't know which came first. And that's a great question. And I will ask Tina that. I don't know. There may be one of the people that we have been working with. There's a woman from the Bar Association named Michelle Parker, who seems to be 
sort of the spearheading person from that side. But also we've been working with Lori Stillwell. And I'm not exactly sure. I know Lori just from, you know, meeting her in the theater community, but I don't know exactly how she got involved and whether or not she's the connection with Tina. I just don't know. I don't know all of the all of the roads that or the threads that tied together to get us to where we are. It just seems like a lot of work and and effort and coordination to go through for one night that it, that it really ought to be looked at for future production or sure. even or even, as I said, publication. Uh, yeah, there has I, to be somebody I, else around the country who's going to be interested in her story. You know, I think that that's probably a conversation that will happen as we move through this and whether or not this exact performance, but at least the 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 script is, you know, is certainly something that I think could have legs. I think it could be a great law school piece mm. if it were sent either live or electronically. I think it could be a civics thing that could go to schools. I, you know, there's any number of different ways that it could be at the Seneca Falls when they do their celebrations for, you know, for the suffrage movement at Seneca Falls. I think there's any number of ripe audiences for it. So we'll see what happens. Big, is it a big cast, basically? At this point, I don't think so. I think there is the central figure, Susan B. Anthony. And then I think there are smaller roles that will be for our performance, they will be performed by members of the Bar Association, the judge, and it's unsure yet because there's a sheriff that comes to arrest her. She sends a letter to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I think there's room probably for all of those people to kind of make an appearance in the story. So it isn't, I don't believe, meant to be a one-woman show, mm -hmm. at least for the production that we're planning in May. There's going to be several kind of satellite characters around the central figure. Boy, it sounds like a really interesting subject. And uh, of course, I feel like I've seen parts of this in some, oh, I want to say, History Channel or, or PBS thing. N not this particular script, of course, but uh, why do I know this story of her standing up to vote and then being arrested for it? I feel like I've seen it as part of some other program. Yeah. I don't know for sure. I couldn't name titles, but I would be shocked if there wasn't some movie made or, you know, television special or something. Or certainly, certainly as part of the entire women's suffrage movement, right. this was a chapter that in a larger movie or a larger historical drama may have been included, yeah. for all we know. I, so. I think you're probably right. And, and you know, now that I that I have a little bit of time on my hands between now and May, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be reading and looking through historical references to figure out how we want this. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it. I think that the, the Bar Association is looking at something fairly straightforward, kind of, I, I shouldn't say like glorified lecture, but I think they're looking for something very straightforward. And, and I'm thinking... Well, can Susan B. Anthony like step out of history and break the fourth wall and add some things like what's the law like today and how would this have happened today? Mm. Is there a way that we can that we can sort of play around with time and space and utilize some of those theatrical conventions to kind of make it just a little bit more engaging or le less because academic? A, because a good history story does not necessarily make good drama, right. <laughs> you know, a right. good entertaining drama. And who knows what they're looking for? Maybe they're looking for just a good history lesson. But on the yeah. other hand, it wouldn't hurt to be entertained at the same time. Well, that's kind of my my theory. And, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I approach it from maybe you don't know what you're looking for. <laughs> How about I help you out? <laughs> <laughs> How about I plant a little seed here about what you what this could be? OK, well, good. That's that sounds great. It sounds very interesting. I'm sorry that none of us will be able to see it this one time around. But who knows? Who knows? In the future. And maybe and maybe they'll it even may show place else. Maybe they'll even record it for future lessons elsewhere. I think there's some talk about that. I believe that one day that we went over to the to just look at the space, Brian and I went over and I do believe there was talk about, you know, like who's going to press record while this right. is all going on. I kind of think it might be me, but. Where will we set up the camera and who presses right. record? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thanks very much. Be be safe. Give my love to Kate who wandered through there. I, and I sure I'm will. glad to hear that she's doing doing better. And um, 
Good talking to you. All right, you too. Bye-bye. So that's Kyle Locanti. Who doesn't love Kyle Locanti? And a project she's working on outside of the ensemble of RLTP Productions for the Second Generation Theater. And we'll have another person from the ensemble coming up in a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of weeks after that. I'm not sure how often I'm going to be able to do these, but I'm going to squeeze as many in as I can because I want to show you that RLTP is a lot of talented people and they're working for a lot of talented theater companies around town. Without further ado, let's get on to Leroy Johnson. He is a painter and an artist and also a lawyer right here in Buffalo, here on RLTP's Off-Road. So that's what I really want to talk about. And I and I know you're a lawyer and all of that, and I would talk about that as well. You know, Scott's been a good friend for years. And I'm super impressed with his organization and what they do. So I'm a good supporter of them. That's terrific. Let me talk a little bit about, I know you're a lawyer by day, but you're an artist and a, and a supporter of the arts. I know you have so many irons in the fire, and I really wanted to talk about all of them. You are originally from Buffalo. Is that is that correct? Correct. Born and raised for the most part here. Yeah. And then after you got your, your Doctor of Jurisprudence from Georgetown, you you got busy down in D.C., as a, a senior executive, what, what was what was what did that entail? Well, I started out with uh, the D.C. City Council as a um, chief legislative assistant for employment and economic development. It was um, it was the first elected government in D.C. Oh, that was exciting because no, uh, no one knew a thing about anything. <laughs> how to draft legislation and um, what was what was the process and, and what were the steps that you needed to go through. So, and who are the agencies and what you have power over and that sort of thing. So um, it, it was exciting because it was a new government. We were the trailblazers for what they're doing now because a, a lot of the uh, procedures that we put in place are, uh, people just followed it naturally because now they know based on what we did. So so was your background in law and your law degree that really helped get this off the ground? Well, what really helped to get it off the ground was that I was in the class that wrote the, the legislation for home rule. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, the professor who was uh, a renowned Washingtonian, um, he had enticed uh, a number of us in the class to take over executive positions in the D.C. government. So I was actually living in Europe at the time, and he called me back, and he kept calling me, you got to come back, you got to work with this government. I said, I don't want to work with the government, but uh, he convinced me to work with the government. <laughs> so I know then in 1981, you went off and worked with your brother, and we'll talk a little about that later. But I'm really more interested in why you came back to Buffalo in 1989, you know, what drew you back to the city? Well, our offices were located here in Buffalo, and I was moving back and forth. We were changing office uh, headquarters from Buffalo to Los Angeles, and we did that a couple times. And then I, I just said, look, you know, we're back in Buffalo. And this is where I'm going to stay. I love it here more than any of those other places. I'm right with you on that. So then you began a law practice as well at that, at that point? Yes, I started law practice. Um, you know, I got involved in a lot of community organizations and that sort of thing. So that was my start of being involved in, um, in the arts and um, in, in the law in Buffalo. Does your law firm or, or do you personally have an emphasis on entertainment law or, or corporate law or anything in particular? Well, I do a little bit of both of those, but um, uh, because I, you know, I've done a lot of entertainment law, I only do certain things in entertainment law for certain people. I, uh, I don't run around and try to solicit clients in entertainment. I, you know, I have people who get in touch with me about it, and I'll do things for that. But my main business in um, law business is personal injury. Personal injury law. Okay. So then I just want to blow smoke a little bit here. You were a recipient of the Legal Elite Lifetime Achievement Award. You're a co-founder of Attorneys for the Arts and the Willie Hutch Jones Educational and Sports Program. Uh, you served on the boards of the Birchfield Penny Arts Center and the Buffalo Society of Artists. I mean, all of these things, you've had a very strong linkage to the arts in general. Has that always been a focus of your life, you know, discounting your brother's work and so on? It has been. It has been. Uh, in Washington, I was involved in the same. I was um, uh, one of the co-founders of the City Museum of Washington. I was very involved in the arts there. 
And um, before that, I, you know, I've always been on the fringe of art, not as an artist, but as a, um, let's just say, as a participant and and, um, and an admirer, a, a person who likes to at least appreciate the arts. And then suddenly, well, okay, we'll get into that a little later also, but I, I want to talk about how you became the artist that you are now uh, as well. But if you don't mind, let's go back a little bit. I want to talk about your early life, your time here in Buffalo. You grew up in, in the projects, the, the Willard Park and Commodore Perry projects. Did you, did you have other siblings? Oh yeah. There's uh, there were, there were eight of us, but uh, uh, there were only five or six uh, in the household at one time. So um, it was um, my older sister, Camille. It was um, Rick, myself, and then my sister Cheryl, Alberta, uh, William, and Penny. Mm -hmm. Those were the, the main people in the house, the only people in the house. And you went to, I know you went to the Catholic elementary school, uh, St. Anne's, St. Bridget's, and so on, Hutch Tech. You did your research, yes? Well, as I told you, when I first started reading up on it, I said, this gets more and more interesting. And I, I was, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out what was the influence on your life, what influenced you and, and made you turn toward the arts, something instilled that in you. And whether it was elementary school at St. Anne's at St. Bridget's or Hutch Tech or, or Canisius or wherever, I just want to know where that, what engendered that. You know, my mother was involved in entertainment and, and entertainment, of course, is the arts also. So mm -hmm. that's where my kind of uh, involvement from the arts comes from. It comes from uh, the fact that uh, we had entertainment all around us. And then there was a, a point in my life where um, I had always been drawing and sketching and that. And then uh, I was involved in an accident when I was very young. And so I was bedridden for a number of years. I, I don't know if you, if you look through uh, my history, uh, mm -hmm. from the age of about around nine or 10 to 13, I had a tutor. And so I had a private tutor for those years. So I missed third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Mm. And I just went, uh, I went from third to seventh. <laughs> that was a uh, um, I went from St. Bridget's to school 53, but in the, in the interim, I had, um, I had a private tutor. I see. Nothing to do, but to read and to sketch and to, you know, to draw mostly. That's where I, I think I, well, I know that's where I, I developed certain skills for art. And um, that's where I, I, I used those skills that I developed to continue with um, art, because once I, I went to high school, I had to decide where I was going to go. And that's when I decided to go to Hutch Tech for uh, commercial art and industrial design. But I only spent a year there because I really didn't like what, um, I wasn't ready for what, what was being offered. I do have a quote from you where you said, who I am today is a result of where I'm from. And I found that interesting because you make it sound like your life in the projects resulted in who you are today. Can you explain that a little bit or elucidate on that? I mean, people, they think the projects are something something bad or, or um, um, it's a terrible, terrible place. But um, I mean, it's terrible for those who are on the outside, but for those in the inside, you know, it's, it's home. And, you know, there are a lot of great people who I met there. And I don't think that living in the projects uh, took anything away from you that uh, wouldn't get from living in the suburbs. That's if you wanted it, and that's if you had someone who was pushing you. There's a lot of people who are around me who uh, are some of the most successful people here in Buffalo who were from the projects. And there's the same creativity there and the, um, the same aspirations and same camaraderie. As a matter of fact, I think there's more camaraderie because y'all's in a closed space. There are more people in a closed space. Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe the negatives to that, but um, positives are that, you you know, you get to meet more people, you get to know more people. And um, I mean, that's the base of my my legal practices are, are those people that I met growing up in the projects, you know. I see. I don't have to advertise because everybody knows me, you know. <laughs> yeah, I notice I don't see any commercials, 1-800-LEROY or anything now, like that. You know, I don't have to put my name up there. And, mm -hmm. you know, benefit of that, they know who I am. No, I mean, there's a benefit also of advertising, you know, let people know that I do this. And um, if you want this, this is where you come to. But um, uh, I am a, as a result of, of things that my experiences when I was young and in the projects, but also see a lot of my art and my vision comes from the, the Catholic Church. And, you know, I use a lot of symbolism from 
Yes. I also use a lot of symbolism from the projects and from the area that I grew up in South Buffalo and in the Willow Park. So, yes, I am what my experiences were. I see. So would you say you said it expanded your vision in some way? It helped you grow uh, more into uh, maybe it strengthened you, helped your character develop. You know, we think we think of the project sometimes as as a place that's devoid of character and devoid of art. And and you're saying that really isn't true. No, it it isn't. I mean, it's there are those things that you see and that um, uh, the bad things. But there are also the good things there. As I said, you know, there's um, there's a lot of people who care in the projects about getting people out of the projects. So they offer services that you ordinarily wouldn't get. And I know one of the things my mother used to do is uh, she was involved in the 4-H and she did a lot of things with the kids in the neighborhood. You know, she took the mm-hmm. kids to different parks, um, Como Park and Delaware to museums and all that kind of stuff, you know, so they gave us exposure that we, we, you know, we ordinarily wouldn't have had. But there are a lot of women who are like my mother down there who, uh, you know, offered uh, sports services and um, educational services and a lot of things. So there's more to it than just the negatives that you hear about in the project. Was your mother employed in some way to do this, or was was this just uh, on a volunteer basis and helping out the family and the neighborhood? mother did that voluntarily she was never given a dime but she spent her own money to do these things Mm -hmm. Um, I think part of what I do is sharing I got that from my mother because what she does uh, she did a lot of sharing with a lot of things Christmas and food and getting people involved in these different clubs and um, uh, she was just a ball of energy and I I really don't have her energy (laughs) she worked three jobs and uh, she would come home and feed us and uh, she left my older sister in charge, which, you know, was good and bad because my sister was young and she was doing her thing. And uh, <laughs> the way she got us in line was just she'd grab us by the collar and say, look, if you guys act up, I'm coming back here and I'm going to whip your butt. <laughs> you know? So that was our discipline. <laughs> All right. Well, what about your other siblings? Were they involved in the arts in any way? Or Rick, who's a, a singer, an artist. Um, of course. My youngest sister, she's, you know, she was involved in, well, two of my younger sisters were both involved in in the church. And um, as a result, one of them used to play the piano and that kind of thing. So that was kind of artsy. But um, mm-hmm. in terms of artists, no. But in the, in the realm of art, sure. most of us did something in the realm of art. Well, let's talk about your art for a while. Artistically, you're known, you know, you're like Cher and Madonna. You used the one word, Leroy. And I know you've had exhibits all over the world, starting in Buffalo, but in New York and Texas and Canada and and Brazil, and even included in the London Biennial in 2019. But I really want to know where all of this started. I don't mean in your childhood, but when you returned to art and you developed your own style in this very vibrant, colorful style that you have, did it evolve from your residency in Washington, D.C., when you got involved in the, you know, the museum of the city of Washington and so on? Well, I, I can't define exactly where, but I can say that when I was in Washington, my office was across the street from the National Gallery of Fine Arts. Mm-hmm. So day I would have lunch there. And I would sit there and I would, um, you know, examine the paintings to get to the area where you could have lunch and that you had to go through the um, the main hall and that. So um, I got a chance to see a lot of the great works and spent a lot of time there. But I wasn't thinking about about painting any of this because actually before I even got to Washington, while I was in high school, I was painting and I was painting while I was in college. Mm-hmm. But it, Never, it was painting for me, and it was never painting for anyone other than myself. And um, as a matter of fact, in my apartment and college, I, I painted murals all over the walls. And um, and this was in the um, like 68, 69. Mm-hmm. And before that, um, in high school, I, you know, I had an apartment when I was in high school and I did the same then. I was doing what I call splash art, which is very similar to Jackson Pollock's work. Um, you know, I would just go into a room and just put something on the floor and just throw paint everywhere <laughs> and put my hands and write, do all those kinds of things, you know, just being very abstract, but not thinking about being an artist, just thinking about, okay, I want to do something with my walls. I'm going to do this with it, you know, and, um, 
I did a lot of that, and it took me a long time to um, to really want to show because I, I was never interested in showing work. And there came a time where my close friend John Simon he says, "Look, he says, why don't you have a show at my salon?" And that was the very first show that I had. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because at the salon, the director of the Birchfield was there. And a number of people involved in the arts were there and they saw my work and asked me to to do a one man show. And that was my very first show. 1996 was when uh, you did it in the salon. And then right. from, from there on, you had individual one man shows in many other places. But at the Birchfield, you say? Well, no, the Birchfield, they, they set the show up. Matter of fact, they set up most of my shows in Buffalo from uh, after the salon show. Uh, I showed. Joy Museum, uh, Erie County Council for the Arts. I can't remember all of them because I've had so many shows. Sure. Theater Roosevelt House, a bunch, a bunch of different shows, um, restaurants, that sort of thing. So, you know, one show leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next, and it just keeps like snowballing and snowballing. And it's, all, it's the same internationally when you do that. Um, you do a show here, and next thing you know, these people are asking you to show it another place. I was fortunate I was going and in, in, in did some shows in Europe. But I think one of the things you have to do is you have to get your confidence together about who you are as an artist. And I never thought about it until I started showing about who was I as an artist. And I didn't realize who I was until I got to Brazil. And I remember the the point of epiphany. Mm-hmm. Then this hotel was called the Othon. And I had, had this... Uh, room overlooking Coco Cabana Beach. And I'm looking down and I'm trying to find myself in terms of who am I as an artist? And I look left and I look right and I look straight forward. And I said, everything that I'm looking at is in my painting. Hmm. And at that point, I realized that that's where I should be, where I was in Brazil. And what I was doing was what I really should be doing. So at that point there, I, I understood that, okay, um, I appreciate what I do myself. So There's two questions this, this brings up then I was going to ask you earlier. Were there other artists that you particularly admired or, or chose to emulate? You mentioned Jackson Pollock, but I'm, I'm sure that wasn't something that you consciously said, I want to emulate Jackson Pollock's style. But were there other artists that you particularly, I mean, paint other painters in, in particular that you admired? That I admired, yes, but that I emulated, no. No. I always admired Picasso and Van Gogh and um, Chagall and Jacob Lawrence and William Johnson and uh, a number of other artists. And then I started meeting other artists. It was when I started meeting artists that I really started appreciating their work. I Early on, I had met Warhol and, and Basquiat, hmm. but my mindset wasn't... Um, where it should have been, you know, <laughs> didn't appreciate what they were doing at all. So, so can you possibly, and, and maybe this goes back to the to Brazil, and and can you possibly explain where the style grew from? Was it from Brazil? Was it the looking around at various things and saying, "This is in my painting, and this is in my painting"? No, I mean it was just a um, a metamorphism of, 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 of just a development of um, this is what I do. So it just sort of grew out of yourself. It's just yeah. So it's never any any conscious effort to create a style. I do know that at one period I was into a geometric period, mm-hmm. and that was early on. But before even the geometric period, I was in, in a figurative period where I was always someone who um, either painted one or two things, uh, either those things that were around me, or those things that were in my imagination, and then. It, seemed to be the imagination started taking more and more over. I started to get flashbacks of of things. And then I started uh, sketching the things that I had a flashback because it seemed as though that if I did not sketch it, it would continue to come. And the only way to get rid of it was to do the sketch <laughs> and do the painting. So usually my, my visions are, are almost totally of what the painting is. It, it has the same colors and the same uh, form. And, you know, it, um, everything is there, the same shape. So I really don't have to do a lot because the vision just screams painting. What about your choice of medium? 
do, do you prefer oils or acrylics or what? I decided I use both and acrylic and um, and oil. And sometimes I even use uh, some pastels and some change my watercolor, my uh, acrylics into kind of a watercolor feel. But, you know, after working with oils um, initially, I moved away because I cannot get my ideas out and done fast enough. Uh, you know, I, I move very fast in my paintings. And so I need something that I can move with. I see. It's the format for it. I see. I see. Well, all right. Now I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot because I'm going to ask you to try to explain for the artistically challenged like myself. I found a quote. I found several quotes about your painting style. And here they are. And maybe you can interpret this for me. It blended modernism, pan-Africanism, geometric forms, symbolism, abstract themes, subtle commentaries. Can you sort of sum that up or explain that? In one word is eclectic. Eclectic. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I'm not trying to think of any format in itself. It's just that as, you know, those people on the outside, the critics, they're the ones who decide to name things or whatever. I, <laughs> I just, I, you know, and I do uh, try to mix primitive style with the more modern, you know, I'll, I'll do some things that, uh, that will look uh, very old and then mix in the new with it and uh, that kind of thing because it's um, it's just showing how we were is, is basically the same as how we are now giving that kind of thought to uh, the work. So what you're saying to me because I'm fascinated by the 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 process of of creativity you don't really sit down and say, I'm going to do this now, or I'm going to do that now. It just sort of flows out of you. And whether it takes on a geometric form or, you know, a symbolic form or a more naturalistic form, it just, whatever it is, it is, it comes out of you that way. Is that, is that correct? And I try to capture it by sketching what I'm thinking. I mean, and, and, and that's a lot of form, a lot of different, it comes out in a lot of forms. Like I may see something that isn't really there, but because I saw it, I'll sketch what I saw. And I'll give you an example. I was, um, I was on Elmwood. I was getting out of the car in front, front of everything Elmwood. And I saw this, what I thought was a, a, a beautiful image of a man holding a woman up more or less in a ballet position and there were beautiful curves and, and, and this. And I said, boy, that's, that's a wonderful you know, image there. Let me take a closer look. And as I walked up closer to it, it was just the sun reflecting off a piece of silver. Wow. So I sketched what I saw and then I did a painting. And you have a sketch pad with you all the time, just in case you... No, um, sometimes, you know, those things I remember that hmm. I sketched, um, I, I sketched it later. But now since I have a phone and this phone has this app in it that you can sketch on, it makes it very easy to do a sketch and, and actually do the colors and everything else. Um, but I don't worry about those things anymore because I know what the colors were when I first see it. It's almost like I have a photographic memory for imagery. Well, before we leave this part of your life behind, is there a future that you are aiming for or whatever happens happens or you are aiming toward another one man show or another another uh, something of that nature in the future or is just you know whatever goes on interesting question because there are i have a one man show coming up at the birchfield scheduled for november but in the interim I'm, I'm i have a number of shows that are going in fact i'm on my way to brazil on tuesday for two shows one at the Museum of Modern Art in Rio, and another one at a place called In Ho Chi, which is the largest outdoor museum in the world, where I'll be showing in May with a group. And, and I'm showing with a group also at the Museum of Modern Art. Are you trying to prepare anything in particular for these, or are these existing paintings? No, these are existing paintings. As a matter of fact, these are something that, that actually, the paintings belong to the uh, National Archive in Brazil, which were done, actually they were done in 96. So the, the paintings have been done years ago and they were in Brazil. They've been in Brazil for years. But um, I got selected with a group of uh, Brazilian artists to, um, as part of what they call Arch, Archi Negra, which is black art. Museo, mm -hmm. Museum of Black Art. I was fortunate enough to be selected as one of the uh, artists to, to be 
part of both um, in Ho Chi Minh and also the Museum of Modern Art. Well, you say fortunate, you make it sound like it's sheer luck, but the fact that you were, that you've had these shows in so many foreign locations, I'm not sure if you can explain how that happened, but sheer luck. It's 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 as I say, it's a preparation and opportunity, and and the preparation is I really didn't know I was prepared, but I had been painting for years and I've been sketching for years, and you don't know, um, no one knows where they stand in terms of who you are and you know what your art represents or whatever. I, I don't think anybody really knows that. And then some, someone says they like it and they, they have it in a show. You know, I mean, you know, there's I've seen so many artists who have done wonderful work and, and presented and got turned down for things, you know? Mm -hmm. they, it, it's, it's fortunate. I was very fortunate enough to, with my experiences in Brazil, to have met almost day one, some of the greatest artists in Brazil and to be accepted by them. And that's preparation and opportunity. The opportunity was luck and the preparation was not so much. Mm. I mean, that's how I've done things almost all my life. I, I'll go and I'll do something. And, you know, if, uh, you have to be prepared. If the opportunity presents itself, then the question is whether they like it. <laughs> and I've been fortunate with that. I haven't been turned down, uh, knock on wood. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a very distinctive style, and I, as I said, I hope I can get some pictures to to put next year. But it's it really it takes your breath away when you first see it. It's so, such a uh, it is so visually arresting. I, I don't know any other way to put it. So I'm sure there's much more in you, and it will continue long long into the future. But congratulations on everything that's that you've accomplished with that so far. Um, I don't know if you have future goals, but Boy, you're do doing pretty darn well so far. I uh, I kind of put together a plan which fell apart. <laughs> I had no plan to about five years ago. And then at five years ago, I said, well, at least what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to do four or five shows a year in different places. And that fell apart quickly because it turned into two wor world tours and um, with a massive number of shows. And so that goal was just thrown right out the window because I just wanted to do five shows a year, five by five, and I was doing eight to 10 or whatever. And, I, you know, I didn't know where I was going to go, but I ended up in, in Asia and Africa and Europe and um, Canada. And, and I actually haven't been to South America in six years, six or seven years. And so going back is, is um, it's going to be a welcome surprise. And especially the the reception that I know I'm going to have there, it's going to be um, interesting. I'm sure it'll be more than interesting. I'm sure it'll be positively delightful. I congratulate you again on that. If you don't mind, though, I don't want to spend time talking about your brother. I want to spend time talking about your role in his career and, and what this project is. And is it still going on? Brother's Keeper that is, is going to talk about uh, your brother, of course, I'm sure that people know about Rick James and, you know, his in incredible funk, disco, R&B. I don't know how you'd describe it. You know, you mentioned a couple of names of songs, and I'm I'm sure people know, you know, the Super Freak and my personal favorite, Give It To Me Baby. This is the late 70s and early 80s. And there was a time when, after your wife passed away, that you went and worked with your brother and worked as a well you started out in merchandising and then ended up running the whole show was that something that he requested of you or was it something that you felt this guy needs me or how did it come about well i mean had my wife not passed i would not even thought about dealing with i understand um but um rick had always tried to entice me to work with him i see when i had the that un unfortunate happening I decided to leave Washington and to go with him to get a complete change of life. And the whole idea was that we were, would be partners, and that's ultimately what we became. Mm -hmm. But it just happened again that um, my core experiences were matched perfectly with what I was going to be doing with him. I had, um, I had done a lot of, uh, of entertainment stuff before. I had done concert promotion uh, I had been involved, as a matter of fact, I had been involved in Rick's career from the very beginning before Toronto. So uh, I was very familiar with, uh, with what he was doing and I was very familiar with what needed to be done. And I think 
my set of um, experiences, they, they fit in perfectly with running everything. Mm-hmm. I, I had an office in Washington with um, 15 employees, and um, I oversaw 60 agencies and over $2 billion. So working with Rick was not going to be you know, challenging. It wasn't. It was just understanding initially. I started out in merchandise, and I saw what was what wasn't going on in merchandise because merchandise with Rick at the time was was just a failed operation. And uh, I took that over, and my first year I made a million dollars and turned that whole idea of what merchandising could be into mm-hmm. something. And at the same time, I was working on um, uh, changing the touring things that Rick was doing. They, a lot of everything that he was doing, the m- amount of monies that he was making with uh, touring and getting rid of a lot of people, which was another thing, because there were a lot of people who were making money, weren't doing anything. Sure. So you, there was a, there was a need for somebody to come in and, and take care of business, somebody to come in and clean house, basically. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And it, the funny thing about it is that Motown was on, in, on board with that as much as Rick was. Mm-hmm. And that's like a contradiction in terms, because uh, for the most part, record companies, they, they don't get engaged in that. But because they projected him to be a superstar, they wanted some controls there. And not that I was working for them, because I definitely wasn't working for them. But I understand. I understood their, con- their concerns. And I learned a lot of the business from their people, because you need to know both sides. And in fact, I know as much about the record side as I do about the artist side because of that experience. So, I mean, I, I, I came in with uh, some unique uh, set of skills and um, I started with the, as merchandise, road managing, then overall managing. You didn't actually go on the road with him, though. You worked out of your office, I, I, I'm assuming. Maybe I'm incorrect. That assumption is wrong. <laughs> so I got uh, firsthand experience with everything. And I was running the office from the road. Oh. So I saw, and, you know, I did all the box office, all that kind of stuff. And um, I made sure everything was was done. So, I, you know, there was no need for a road manager now because I was not only his manager, but I was his road manager also. Wow. Did, can we go back just for a second? Did When you were kids, did you and, did you and your brother, was, I know you said your mom had music around the house all the time, but were you, were you and your brother particularly interested in music at that point? Well, Rick was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick was very interested in music. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, Rick was always interested in music. But, you know, I was, you know, more interested in bookish things. I see. Things, um, I was more interested in history and art and science and those kinds of things. I understand. But was he involved in any music? I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that the two of you did, were involved with the African-American Cultural Center for a while, doing something there. I'm not exactly sure what it was. Yeah, we were. We both were. I played congas. Mm-hmm. Rick played congas, bongos, and everything. He did everything. And we both danced. Yes, we uh, we both were involved in that together. I, I really don't, I don't, a lot, talk a lot about that, but that was a, a, an important part in Rick's career, and it also added a lot in terms of my knowledge about entertainment, working with um, Milton Murnai, because he used to bring in Ola Tunji and um, Elvin Ailey and all those people who come in, so you got a, an understanding of production and um, touring. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that was early on that we did that. So. Yeah. I was just curious if, if life in the in the family household with mom playing music all the time, if there was a, you know, an early influence that was particularly evident to you. Well, you know, as again, all those things were happening, and I wasn't thinking about that. You know, it was just happening. You know, yeah. I was thinking about the African culture, or uh, we had a lot of music people around us: uh, Alvin Shepard and George Holt, and Art Blakely used to come by. Oh. You know, and my uncle used to play with Dizzy Gillespie and a lot of them, you know, so music people came by and, you know, we used to go to the Zanzibar and um, (laughs) all kinds of things, man. But I kind of just thought that that was just what you did, you know. Sure. A lot of that played into things that we needed when we were on the road. For instance, uh, when we were on the road, I would always take our groups into the radio stations and get that extra promotion and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's important because that's part of marketing. 
and my merchandising was the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would uh, prepare enough merchandise, but I wouldn't just sell it at the concerts. I would go to the boys and girls clubs and to uh, different places, uh, to the gym where I worked out, made sure that everybody had T-shirts and that. So, you know, I built, I built a lot of excitement around the shows. So um, uh, that's very cool. Those are just some of the things that I did during those days. Well, what is the status of the of the I don't know if it's a film or a TV production or if it's going to be a, a series of, you know, a mini series of something right now on hold because um, it has always been secondary to what I want to do. And because of everything that I'm doing for me, mm-hmm. I just don't didn't have the time. I don't have the time to really focus the way I want to focus on it. So I continue just to write with it. And um, is it I'm, going to be a scripted, uh, like a documentary, or is it going to be a fictionalized version? Well, it, it wouldn't be fictionalized. It'd be a, a nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I've been writing for years, so it could be it could take a number of forms. It could take a, a um, feature length film, or it could take um, it could be a series um, mm-hmm. because broke, broken down into uh, uh, different parts of life i'm not interested in doing a, a, a documentary because uh, the, the documentary would be from my perspective and that's where i have problems with documentaries because documentaries i'm seeing it's my truth uh-huh. um, i have problems with this say for instance the documentaries that come out because i know that half the things in there are not not true mm-hmm. you know and i know that the people uh-huh. that they have uh, saying the things in there they should not be representing uh, they shouldn't be in the in those uh, documentaries because, for the most part, most of what they're saying is biased, and um, just some of it is flat out not true. And nobody knows it as well as you, I imagine. That's a problem that uh, you know, if, if a person from the outside saw it, they say, "Oh, it looks great," you know, and and they asked me what I think, and I was like, "Well, a lot of that just didn't happen, and it didn't happen that way." And some of the people that you got represented in there, there, there's no way that I would have someone representing our organization who was fired for some outlandish reasons. And that person now is being marketed as a, as a person who uh, is an authority on Rick. That, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make sense. You know? So were, were you the one, did you bring this to, to, uh, to filmmakers, to uh, Addison, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, Addison Henderson, or did somebody approach you? Were, were you, in other words, were you trying to write, write the story and correct the story, or did somebody come to you and say, "We want to do this, and we want you to tell it the right way"? No, no, no. My my thing is that this is what I wrote, and this is what it is, mm-hmm. and what it is. Everything that's in what I say can be documented. It can be documented through, and, and because a lot of what I, I talk about is not being talked about in those documentaries. They, um, all they want to do is talk about drugs and jail. All the flashy stuff, all the stuff that has been in and, the newspapers and so on. You know, they don't want to talk about the impact, the real impact of what Rick's music was and what his impact was on the music business. Um, mm-hmm. For the most part, because they don't know, and they have the wrong people who are really doing the uh, either the the documentary, all these or these on songs and all that. When I, you know, I look at it, I won't do it if certain people are involved, because I know the perspective, and I won't do it also if if you tell me what your narrative is and I don't agree with it, because most of them they all want to come out, they all want to exploit the drugs and the the prison and all that other stuff. They don't want to exploit the good things, the MTV, the, the changes that we brought to the business. Oh, absolutely. Of- I mean, he was the mark he made on the business and the changes that he brought about in, in terms of MTV as well. But in terms of the black experience that showed up on MTV, he was a trendsetter. He was yeah. the first guy to do certain things. You won't get that. You won't get to, you won't get that from these uh, these. You know, they, they make Rick as just another black entertainer. Mm-hmm. We're, in, in our era, that wasn't who we were. We were a major superstar in those eras. And we crossed over all the lines, you know. So 
if if you if most of them can't feel it because they don't understand it. So if you don't understand it, you're the wrong person to be involved. Right. And that's what I see, and and just about every last one of them. Each one of them, they want to cater to the estate, and all the estate wants to cater to is making money. Mm. You know, whereas they could make money by telling the truth, but because nobody in the estate knows the truth, you're not going to get. I understand. I don't. I don't engage in it. I let them do what they're going to do because I can't stop it anyway, and um, my time will come. So this particular project is on hold. You say, yeah. It's on- are there other projects in the works that you are not connected to that that you, as you said, you disagree with their uh, what their aspect of the story? Well, you know, you just had that bitching, which um, mm-hmm. Showtime, which you know, a lot of people liked it. But as I said, you know, I talked to the producers from the beginning, and um, I didn't believe a word they said. And and if I if I showed you the letters and that that they sent to me, and and you saw what they put out there, you would see that they presented. Um, just uh, falsities to me as and you know in terms of how I would be participating what they were going to do and also their level of knowledge about things that you know they they just continue to to regurgitate what's out there and a lot of what's out there is false it's funny when I read these things on in um like the Wikipedia it starts out second line that Rick's uncle um Melvin Franklin from the temptations this that, and the other I stopped reading because if it starts off bad like that, if I said, I don't know anything about Melvin Franklin being my uncle, <laughs> unless you know he's Rick's uncle and there's something separate between the two of us, <laughs> you know. So if, uh, but they regurgitate that in these, um, in these these uh, these so-called documentaries. I can't even call them a documentary because a documentary, by definition, is truth. Right, it's supposed to document the truth. That's that's the idea. And it's not fact-based. It's not even it's not even researched well. Uh, some of the timelines that they got make absolutely no sense. Makes no sense at all. But I can tell you all that because I was there from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And there's this planet who knew Rick better than I did because we grew up 11 months apart. And I was part of his life from the beginning to the end. So not, nobody else in there has that kind of experience. No one. So... That's what I present to the table. If people are interested, fine. But right now, the things that are going on in my life, for me, come first. Absolutely. And you're plenty busy. I can see that. I can I can tell that. And you're right. They're basically interested in sensationalism because sensationalism sells. And that's really what they're doing. They're selling a product there and selling commercial time or whatever. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate you doing this. I hope you have... I don't know if you have, I can, I'm sure we can find things online, but I would like to have a photo of you near your paintings that we can use. Do you have anything like that off the top of your head that if you have something handy, I don't mean to put you out. I don't mean to have you do a lot of extra, you know, no, I, work or anything, but. That for um, the Birchfield show. So I've got a lot of them. Um, I've got everything organized on my, on my phone. So it's not a big problem. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, it's it's just a fascinating life, and uh, it sounds like you've got a lot a lot on your plate right now. Yes, uh, I'm trying to get it all done <laughs> as much as I can. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Leroy. I have a wonderful day. Good luck with all of your shows in the future, and uh, all the best to you. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye now. No, I'm not worried about the snow. I've got four cords of wood stacked up in the garage. I'm... Oh, never mind. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as we try to stretch out here on Off-Road and sort of focus in on and identify some of the incredible talent right here in Buffalo with Leroy Johnson. If you get a chance to see one of his shows, one of his one-man shows, or even as part of a gallery, I strongly suggest you take a look at his paintings. As a matter of fact, you can just Google him and Google some of the paintings online and you'll see what I'm talking about. I thank him so much for joining me here today. And that's it for another edition of RLTP's Off-Road. Next time, the interview you've been waiting for, the man who is going to finally reveal all 
Well, maybe he's not going to reveal all, but he's going to talk a great deal about his life, and that's what I've been wondering about for a long time. You may have heard him in the history podcasts, but now it's all about Anthony Chase. Tony Chase will be here for a full interview in two weeks. So I hope you'll be safe, I hope you'll be healthy, and I hope you'll be here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.